This is one in a series of Iowa Watch podcasts. The series is called Voices of COVID in Iowa. I'm Lyle Muller. On a normal day, helping sick people cope with the most serious life-threatening illnesses is a given at the Medical Intensive Care Unit at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Lung failure, liver failure, kidney failure, the list goes on. Dr. Gregory Schmidt sees a little more than a dozen of these patients during morning rounds, then works with other health care givers at the hospital to map a plan to save each person's life. Well, in, in normal times, the MICU has a very broad and varied population of patients and problems. You know, it, typical things would include severe life-threatening infections, shock, bleeding, pneumonia, lung failure, emphysema, liver failure. Gregory Schmidt is director of University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Critical Care Programs an associate chief medical officer for critical care at UIHC. He also is a professor of internal medicine at the University of Iowa, specializing in pulmonary, critical care, and occupational medicine. In mid-January, when we caught up with him, one half of the 25-bed intensive care unit's patients had COVID-19. There was a post-holiday blip, but numbers settled down. The COVID-19 patients were isolated from the outside world including their families. Iowa managed the blip, but a lot of healthcare workers were wondering if Iowans understood how brutal dealing with COVID-19 in the hospital is for patients and for healthcare workers. Well, I, I would first say that it's not always clear where someone acquires their infection. I think there often is a temporal association with things like holiday gatherings. And of course, th those are also quite poignant because they're the, they really reveal the tension that the pandemic confronts all of us with, which is trying to understand how to reduce our risk um, and yet live our lives. And I think these, so when someone is being overall generally very careful with how they conduct their life and keeping themselves safe. And then they break that care for a holiday gathering with family that's important to them and then have a life-threatening and in a couple of these instances, fatal uh, course of COVID-19. It's just quite painful to watch that happen. Mm -hmm. Do you think the general public has a full understanding of just what type of suffering goes on? that you get to see on a daily basis at work? Not a chance. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Is it just because of so being so far removed from it? I think it's a combination of things. I think, first of all, um, even clinicians historically have, when a patient survives an ICU stay, we have always celebrated that, you know, life-threatening illness, you get them through, and then it's, you know, hooray um, success. And sometimes that actually is completely true, but 
I think what we underestimated for many years was the post-ICU consequences of having been critically ill. And I'm talking now pre-pandemic. And it's really been um, maybe over the last 15 years, maybe, maybe 20 years ago, we started to really appreciate the toll of post-ICU illness in terms of challenges, especially with cognitive functioning, executive functioning, the ability to make decisions or to do a job, to handle finances, um, a lot of physical debility, uh, limitations in being able to, you know, use hips and shoulders or muscular strength to carry out activities of daily living. So the first thing is, I think that in general, the public probably has maybe our prior sense of what ICUs are about, which is that if you make it through and you survive, it's like, that's, that's great. And of course it is great, but it's incomplete. It's an incomplete story. And I think most people don't understand um, how much subsequent burden in terms of quality of life there is for many of our patients. So I think that's one factor. I think you, what you said also makes sense. They don't see what I see. They simply don't see the suffering. They don't see the death. And I would also add, I think um, we're all aware that there's been a, a lot of um, misinformation and disinformation to try um, to make the impact of the pandemic maybe less evident. What type of misinformation or disinformation are you talking about? Well, for example, the notion that, well, I've heard it commonly stated that this disease is similar to the flu, for example. I mean, medically, that's just simply absurd. It's just not true. Or that it only kills um, very frail, fragile, elderly patients. And while it's true that older patients with comorbidities and other serious illnesses are at greater risk of death. Um, I've seen numerous young patients die of this illness, patients in their 20s, patients in their 30s. Families end up watching all of this play out remotely. The ability to grieve naturally, bedside with a loved one, is taken away, and that keeps COVID-19 from spreading. The worst cases become death from a distance. People like Schmidt and other frontline healthcare workers treating patients with COVID-19 get to deal with it. And not just as care providers, they become surrogates for families. I've never been awake and on a breathing machine, so I can't tell you from personal experience, but because I care for these patients all the time, it's quite routine for patients on breathing machines to have pain, to have shortness of breath, to be unable to effectively communicate their needs and wishes and fears and discomfort. We work hard to try to facilitate communication, but it's often not possible. A lot of our patients are deeply sedated. They're effectively in a medical coma. They may be paralyzed with paralyzing drugs um, because they are so close to the edge of death 
that if we did not do that, they would get sicker um, and be at risk of death. So many of my patients are not able to communicate with me. And as something we'll probably get to in a bit, um, because of the limitations on being able to visit, um, one of the real tragedies of this pandemic is the isolation of critically ill patients, isolation from the people they care about and care about them. What type of mental drain is that? It, it's, it seems predictable that it would be tough. I think it's tough up and down. It, it's tough for the patient because they derive comfort from the people they know and love. And instead, they're in an environment with people who surely care about them, um, but we're clinicians and we're not their family. So it's hard for the patients. It's in some ways, maybe even harder for families who are at a distance and who are often getting news over a telephone or, you know, maybe FaceTime, but they can't actually see what's happening. And it, it's, it's hard enough, I think, to go through the critical illness of your loved one when you can actually experience what that means for them by being there, by seeing, oh, yes, here's how they are. Yes, I see that they're sick. My goodness, they look sick. To not be able to see that just creates all kinds of challenges of not knowing what's going on or being worried about what's happening or feeling that you're missing the involvement with what's happening or that journey, you know, that shared journey of um, patients and their loved ones. It's, it's becoming a much less shared journey. And then, of course, for us clinicians, for the, for the doctors, the nurses, the advanced practice providers, the respiratory therapists who are um, dealing with this illness, we're seeing this happen. We're watching our patients ill but separated. We're talking with these family members and hearing them at the other end of a telephone line with their incredulity, their distress, their questions, their concerns, and having to answer that over a telephone is just got to be awful. This podcast is a copyright production of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. Iowa Watch's reporting on COVID 19 in Iowa can be found at iowawatch.org, and you can find other podcasts in this series there. I'm Lyle Muller for Iowa Watch. Thank you for listening.